Please stand for the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, 21 through 36, and 40 through 42. Because this is a longer text, the words will be projected on the screen behind me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his 
house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, G, and good morning, everyone. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you today. Uh, if you are just visiting with us, especially glad to have you. Uh, I know this is the time of year when people are coming through to visit others, starting new chapters in their lives. Whether you're on one of those journeys or just passing through, glad to have you today. If you're one of our regulars, great to have you. Good to see you. We are continuing on in a series uh, in the book of Exodus. We're in the 12th chapter now. We've been calling Out of Darkness and Into Light, focusing on the ways that God delivers his people out of terrible things out of darkness, out of pain and suffering, out of the crushing oppression of slavery and genocide, as we talked about in the early weeks, into something very different, into light and life with him. 
And we're looking at this so that we might get a sense of how we might understand the ways that God does this in our own lives, how we might understand the perseverance that God gives us, that he calls us into when we face difficult things. We will face difficult things. You probably have faced difficult things. You're going to continue to do that in the Christian life. We want to be really clear that the Christian life is not some sort of you become a Christian and everything is just fine from thereafter. Scripture is very clear that's not the case, but it wants you to know the God who delivers you in the midst of these things. Uh, And last time, two weeks ago, we took a break last week, we saw that God ultimately delivers us out of the most difficult things of our lives, uh, not because we finally understand how he works, not because those people that were preventing us from flourishing, that were doing terrible things to us, finally agree that it ought to be over, but because God, the one who works, who is all-powerful, decides it is time, whether we understand it or not, whether someone else is willing or not. And this week, we get to look at that actual moment. When God says, now is the time. Maybe you've had some of those moments in your life where you've been waiting for something for a long time. You've been waiting for for an injury to heal. You've been waiting for a relationship that's broken to be fixed. You've been waiting for someone to stop being mean to you. And you know that, that one moment when God finally said, now is the time. Or you can imagine what that moment will be like. And it's an exciting, uplifting, glorious moment. Now, there's so many things we could talk about in our text today. It's a very familiar passage, maybe to to many of us, and so familiar that we might wash over some of what's in there, but we can also get lost in some of the details. Uh, Kids, if you're here this morning, you are often detail experts. You see things that we grown-ups know how to gloss over. Grown-ups, I would invite us to have a bit of a kid's perspective and get lost in the details this morning. And for both of us together, kids and grown-ups, I want to talk about how, how these details, when we get into things like this in Scripture, aren't about us getting lost in the minutia of what those things are. They're, they're telling us something about who God is, about what He's like. These details aren't just about the details themselves. They're pointing to something bigger. And so today I want to focus on what's different about this last plague, the plague of the firstborn. It was promised in chapter 11. We see it unpacked here in chapter 12, but it's very different than all the other plagues. There's a lot of details about what happens here, and I want to look, about, look at what's different about this point. When God finally decides that it's time to deliver, things look different. What do those differences tell us? about God's relationship to his people and what his deliverance looks like in our lives. So I want to look at just two things. What's different about this time? And then what's going to be different about the future? So just those two. What's different about this time when God delivers and what's going to be different because of God delivering about the future? Before we do that, would you pray with me? God, we bring ourselves before you. We've already been hearing from you, speaking to you many times this morning. What we pray now is we come to to set down for a few moments in the story of who you have been, about the things that you do, about the kind of God that you are, that you might also sit down with us, that you would set up shop here with us for a little while, that you might help us to quiet our minds and our hearts, that we might feel your presence that we might hear from you in all the ways that our hearts are longing to hear from you. Would you just speak even just one word that my friends and I might hear this morning from you and know that you are the God who delivers and that you are bringing us out of darkness and into light. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Well, if you have a Bible, feel free to have that open. If not, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to go back through some of the details of the text together, particularly in this first point this morning, and look at what's different about this time. This tenth plague is very different from all the nine that come before it. First of all, because Pharaoh actually lets the people go. He finally capitulates and gives in and says, this is the time that you're going to be let go. But there are so many other subtleties here that point to something different, and I want to focus on those because they reveal how in delivering us, God moves closer to us and how he gives us things to draw us closer to him. That's what God does through these things. That's what he's teasing out in these things that we're going to see, that that God moves closer to us when he delivers, not farther away. And he draws us closer in by giving us things to participate in. And so to take that last one first, what's different this time with this plague is that God gives the whole nation, all of Israel, something to do. This is the first time that happens. If you go back through the other plagues, it's Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron announce this. Moses holds up the staff. He touches that. He speaks these words, and things change, but the people don't do anything. The people are shielded at various times, but they're not participating. This is the first time that all of a sudden the people are called to do something. You're given a job to do. That has a very different feel to it. If you could imagine, you've been sitting on the sidelines where these massive, life-changing, world-changing events are happening, things you could not imagine or see, locusts, gnats, darkness, hail, blood, frogs, all these things, and you're like, whoa. And now someone is calling you to get in the game. Someone's calling you to participate in that. It's like sitting in the stands at a sporting event, basketball game, football game, whatever. You're watching professionals, the best in the world play. You're amazing. You've been there all season. It's been great. It's been a great season. Someone tells you, get down out of the stands. You're on the floor. You're in. Here's a jersey. Go. That feels different, doesn't it? You feel a little bit like, um, me? I'm not so sure about me. There's there's a nervousness and uncertainty to stepping into that. How's it going to go, right? Like maybe you haven't played sports in a long time. Maybe you've never played sports, but you're not a professional. This is going to be jarring to you. Playing is different than just watching. God's inviting his people to start playing on the field. They are going to participate in this great exodus. They're not just going to be passive observers Now they have a part to play. They're being involved. But even even more than just being invited into the game, even more than just becoming participants, what God asks them to do in that participating is so different than anything that would be part of their normal lives. Let's look at these. We're going to go back through verses 3 all the way through 11. Okay, verse 3, God says, take a lamb for the slaughter. You and I take meat for granted. If you're not a vegetarian or a vegan or even so, we're in a culture where meat is common. You could get meat now. You could have it immediately after service. You could have it for dinner. You could have it tomorrow. Meat was not as common a thing to be eaten. This was for feasts, for special occasions. This was going to be a different day. This is more like a Thanksgiving, a Christmas, a, a special family gathering. This is a different day. Verse 4 says, organize by families, but combine wherever the family is small. Wherever you've lost someone, wherever you haven't yet found that someone that you hoped to have, 
He's bringing people together. No one's being left out because they they don't have something of their own. No matter what, no matter why, everyone is called to do this together, to be bound together, to be of a certain size, and to have everyone, hundreds of thousands of people at this time, all doing this at once, as if the whole population of the state of Massachusetts, say, for scale, was doing this all together. Everyone was stopping to do this. That's different. Verse 5, it says, only choose a specific kind of animal. You have to choose a lamb. Not just a lamb, it has to be a one-year-old lamb. Not just any one-year-old lamb, it has to be a spotless lamb. God's telling them, I want you to get out there and I want you to focus. I want you to look carefully, I want you to think critically, and you're going to find this one specific animal. Then you're going to hold that animal verse 6, for four days. You're not going to do anything with it right away. You're going to stare at this goat or this lamb for four days. You're thinking about what's coming. There's an anticipation. This isn't just, we got it today, great, I've been at the grocery store, we're going to have dinner tonight. You're preparing. There's an anticipation to these things. And after all that anticipation, you're going to kill it at dusk, when darkness is coming. And the first thing you do, verse 7, after killing it, is not eat it. You don't go right into preparation. You don't go right into cooking. What's the first thing you do? Verse 7, the first thing after you do when you kill it is not cook it or eat it, but take the blood and paint it on the doorposts of your house. This was not a normal thing to do then. This is not a normal thing to do now. It was not a normal thing to do with blood then or now. If you're watching this, we just happen to be going through this in October, this feels appropriately seasonal. This feels like if you saw one of your neighbors that has bought one of these 20-foot skeletons painting their house with blood, you would think, Halloween, it's the season. If they were doing that in May, you would think, what is going on? (laughs) This is deeply troubling. But everyone, hundreds of thousands of people, have just killed animals, all of them at twilight, and are now painting their houses with blood. This is different. Okay? Now that you've painted with blood, you've done your crafts time, you get to move back into eating. Verse 8 through 9, when you cook it, don't do the normal things. Normally you would boil or bake it using some kind of pan. Now you are to roast the whole thing, all of it whole. Prepare it differently because this meal is different. It's not meant to be like anything you've done before. In verse 10 through 11, when you eat it, don't leave any leftovers. Some of you are thinking, yes, no leftovers, crush it. But that would be a very strange thing to say to slaves. No leftovers. You're not allowed to save something more. It's suggesting that you might not be here tomorrow to eat leftovers. That something different is happening, that what you would normally save and scrounge for because you are an oppressed people, you're being told to let go of. If there's any extra, you burn it or you eat it, that's it. This is very strange. It suggests things are going to be different. And all they're, they're doing a lot of different things. They're all gathering. They're choosing something. They're focusing. They're waiting. They're killing. They're roasting. They're eating. And they're painting their houses with blood. 
They're physically doing so many things that are cluing their bodies and souls and minds into participating in what God is doing. There's almost no part of them that's not involved. They would be hearing things, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. All of their being is getting involved, wrapped up in, participating in the deliverance that God's about to bring about for them. God's marking out in just stark, stark ways that they are not just going to watch him do this. They're going to be bound to this. They are part of this. They're participating. They're not at the game. They're in the game. They are on the field. God's showing them that his deliverance, when it actually comes, doesn't look like us just being observers. It doesn't look like God keeping us far off. It looks like him involving you. In you being a participant, could you imagine hearing that as a slave? People who have been enslaved for 430 years, that God is saying, you get to play a part. You, who Pharaoh has said is worthless. You, who no one seems to like. You get to play a part in this massive world-changing thing. That is deeply dignifying. And God does the exact same thing with us in our brokenness. He says, you get to play a part. You get to have a vibrancy and a participation in this thing called the Christian life. You who were broken, I want you to participate. This belongs not just to me, God's saying. This belongs to you. I am making this belong to you. It would be unbelievably powerful to hear that as a slave. And God is saying that just as much to you and I, however low you think you are, however bad your week has been, however bad your year has been, your life has been, his deliverance belongs to you. He means to draw you in. He means to give you things. That's part of what Sunday worship is about, having a life and a liturgy, rhythms that draw you in to participate in the things that now belong to you. This is not just about here going through the motions, just about doing dead rhythms. These are things that are meant to call out life in you to the deliverance that belongs to you. And not just that, he means not just to, to draw you in, he also means, and this is the second major difference, he means to draw closer to us. God's actually going to be present in this. He's going to participate in a new way. If we go back to the text, he's going to be personally present. He's worked so far only through Moses and Aaron at a distance. His power has been there, but his presence has not been there. Now he's going to work directly. Verse 12 says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn. Verse 13, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He's going to be there. He's going to have to see it, right? This is not, they didn't, they didn't repaint their whole house. It says just the doorframe. You would have to get close enough to see that. The presence of the God who is bringing all these plagues is going to get close enough to see if there is blood on the frame of your door. And not just for a moment, verse 42 says, it was a night of watching by the Lord that for the whole night he was present. He was participating himself. 
The God who's been displaying all this power is now coming down in person, and that can't help but make you a little more nervous. We, we had the opportunity to go whale watching this summer in Cape Cod, which I've never done before. It was amazing. There were 30-some whales. They told us, and I don't want to give false expectations here, they said, this is not a normal day, right? Don't expect this many whales if you come out again. But I've seen planet Earth. I know whales are big. I know they are majestic. But when you see one pop up and breach 20 feet from your boat, that is very different. There is a power of this massive creature who weighs tons and tons just breathing next to you where you feel like, oh, have I made a mistake coming out here? Right? This is a very large creature that you could imagine Israel feeling like, okay, that, that God, is, he's coming here. There's also that moment, I think, in Star Wars Episode Six, where Darth Vader arrives, talks to one of the commanders on the Death Star, and says, you can tell the Emperor when he gets here, and he says that the Emperor is coming here? There's a great panic, right? That, that's the opposite version. That's evil. But, but when we have a great presence come into our midst, we feel like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not sure I'm ready for this, but God's presence is not meant to make his people nervous. That's not what this is about. It's meant to show us, at least in part, that his deliverance will not look like him staying at a comfortable distance. When did Pharaoh ever go out and see how they were doing? Would he even know what their houses looked like? Would he ever know if there was something painted on their doorposts? He never, for all his power, came near. God is going to come near His deliverance looks like closeness to his people, even those who are vastly beneath him. His deliverance looks like being there with you, being there for you, in it with you, face to face, shoulder to shoulder. That's what God is like. His heart for deliverance is to be close, to save you from darkness in an up-close and personal way. That's what, that's what Exodus shows us. It's what Jesus shows us. If Jesus is anything, he is the up-close, personal deliverance of God that desires to be close. You can't say that God comes any more close to us than Jesus in becoming one of us, that God's desire to be close to you and delivering you is so strong that he would become one of us, not just for a moment, but for all time. The theology of Christianity is that even now, Jesus has a body as you and I do in heaven forever. That's how close God desires to come. Exodus and Jesus show us God isn't content to stay far off. Some of us have felt that. You've asked for help and someone has not paid attention. You've called and they've not picked up. You've talked to them when they were a couple of feet away and they said, okay, but they turned away and did nothing. The desire of our hearts is to be heard and answered in closeness, and that's what God wants to do for us. He means to draw near. Do you know the God of Christianity like that? like he actually wants to be close with you. Or are you more comfortable with the idea that that God doesn't want to be close to me? Or that God is just an idea. He's something that I can learn about from a distance, but I don't have relationship with. He's, 
He's something that I don't have to be near. He's a, a documentary that I can watch, but not something I participate in. Where are you in that? Because this is where God is. This is what he has staked out. This is his position. Thousands of years ago, written down and enacted out that he wants to be close to you. Reaffirmed in Jesus Christ that he wants to be close to you. Are you settling for a God at a distance? And he was willing to pay the greatest price to have absolutely no distance between you and him. Now, I I know there may be things that make us feel like we want to keep a distance from God or or that we feel like he would want to keep a distance from us. And I want to talk about that in our our second point here because I'd wager that at least some of what makes us want to keep God at a distance or makes us think he wants to keep a little distance from us is our past, who we've been, our, our hurts, the things that have been done to us, our failures, in helping others, our, our frustrations and our brokenness. There are probably ways that we feel like God doesn't want to be anywhere near me or I don't want to have God come anywhere near this. But to get at what it might look like for, for God to come close to us in a different way, I want, to, I want to see what the text says will be different about our future. What's different about the future of the people of God? Not just how this this deliverance is different with the closeness of God, with our participating, but what does that mean for things going forward? So to get to the second point, what is going to be different about the future for God's people? It's going to be a little bit different than we expect. Verse 2 says this is going to change everything for them. It's going to draw them into a kind of deliverance that would be a completely new start. Look at verse 2. It says, this month shall be for you now the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Everything shifts. It's as if all of a sudden January isn't the new year anymore. Now October is the new year. That's very different. All the rhythms, rhythms are being thrown off. It's saying, almost like with independence in America, now July is somehow significant, when July before was just hot and insignificant, right? Now, all of a sudden, this month is going to mean something that it never meant for you before because of what I'm going to do, because of how much I'm going to change. What was going to happen in the Passover in this deliverance would completely change their lives. It would be the start of a new life. And when we think of the start of a new life, you might think of something like a New Year's resolution. That's who I was last year. I don't know how many of us are still keeping our New Year's resolutions from beginning of 2023. I see one hand in the back. All right. Okay. Respect. But the rest of us, I'm with you, right? The old us has stayed in the new year. But that's what we feel like in a a new year, a new start. The whole, hey, blank slate, the me that was is no more. I'm going to get up early or I'm going to stay up later. I'm going to work harder, whatever it is. We feel like there's going to be this disconnect between who we were and who we are now. But the picture we get through this passage is different than that. Verses 14 and 17, they say, Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, the Passover, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. And you shall keep it as a feast, verse 17, skipping through, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you from slavery. He says they are always to celebrate the Passover always to make it a memorial of the fact that they were enslaved. God broke that system of oppression and took them out of being slaves. 
So that means, if we think about it for a second, their painful past was always going to be something that they remembered. Every year it would come up that they used to be slaves for the rest of their lives. For the generations to come, it says they're going to teach their children this. When your children ask you, you're going to teach them, and so on and so on, that once we used to be slaves, with all the complexity that comes along with that. It was meant to be something they kept remembering, but also celebrating freedom from every year. This past was to always be part of their future, not something they hid and never talked about, but something that that went forward with them. And that might feel strange. Like God's not letting them get past this. Like, oh God, why do you have to keep reminding us that that's who we were? Why do you have to bring this up every year? Why, why can't we just move past that? But this, this remembering is not God holding them back. It's not a punishment or a shame. It's something that's meant to actually get them past it in a final and true and ongoing way so that it, it wouldn't have power over them anymore. God's reminding them of their past on an annual basis to give them a different future. Because if God said, hey, we did this, but I don't want you to ever talk about that again. You need to let that part of you die. Don't speak of it. Don't write it down. Nobody talks about the fact that you used to be slaves. You're my people now. You were never slaves. That might feel more comfortable to us. You'd be like, great. That was a nightmare. Never have to talk about that. Never have to think about that. But if that was the case, their past would still have power over them. It would be something that they couldn't face if it came up, if it was was exposed. If people learned who they really were, their image would come crashing down. This veneer of I'm this person with this spotless record, this spotless past with no cobwebs, no skeletons in the closet would be suddenly shattered and their past would have all this power over them again. Maybe you can relate to that feeling. Not being free from your past in some way. Being afraid of what would happen if that part of your life was really found out. If someone knew that you did this thing, even a small thing, that the image of who you are would just be crushed. You want a different future, but you're sure that you have to hide your past in order to have that. In calling them to always remember their past, God gave them and gives us the gift of a future where they and we can own all of who you are. All of it. All of it gets owned. They get to let their past be known, to let it stand in the light and not be afraid because it doesn't have power over them anymore. Now God's grace has power over it. That's what he's doing. He is putting it consistently, year by year, under his grace. This is who you were, but now you are under grace. This was who you were, but now you are under grace. You were once a broken people, and now you are under grace. This never gets to have power over you, because now it is under grace. Now their past, now your past, if you are in Jesus Christ, answers not to anyone else, but to him. 
That's who your story answers to. That's who the really broken things in your life answers to. All these things can stand there. All this for Israel could stand there because, yes, they were slaves, but they are slaves no more. The blood of redemption was on the doorposts of their house, and they had been marked out as those for whom there is no more judgment. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 8. There is no more condemnation. Your house of your soul has been marked with the blood of Jesus Christ as no longer having condemnation. This is what Jesus does for us in an even greater way than the Exodus, that his death on the cross not only breaks the power of sin over us, it doesn't just bring us out of the slavery to sin that we once had, it gives us a new future, a different future, where you don't have to hide from that anymore, but the fullness of who you were, the complete dumpster fire of a life that you led before, is now getting to be under grace. Don't you see the freedom in not having to hide who you were? Not having to hide what was done to you. This is Israel not having to hide what was done to them. This isn't about the mistakes that they made. This is about what someone did to them. If you feel like you are in that place where someone betrayed you deeply, they hurt you, they sinned against you, you get to see here in Scripture that God says, that answers to me now. You are under grace now. You are not under their power. You are not under that shame. You are under grace now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your past with Jesus gets to be just another place that his redemption is visited. Just another landmark where his grace has shown up. You can have a future freed of the power of the past because of the cross. That's what he does. He gives us a different future that can handle our past because he has paid to cover it. And no one gets to say anything about that now. Now, I know that that may not hit for all of you today, and it won't hit all of your story, even if it does. We have complex stories. There is brokenness in our lives. But there are, there are ways for many of us that we certainly feel like, and I know I feel this, that someone can't know what I used to be like. Someone can't know what I said this week, what I did this week. Someone can't know that I have this background, that I have a criminal background. Someone can't know that I've been this kind of person, that I've been fired, that I rage quit, that I walked out on a relationship, that someone walked out on a relationship from me. They can't know what was done to me. And there's wisdom, I want to say, there's wisdom to what we share and who we share it with. But listen, you were always, you were always meant to be a redeemed people. You were always meant to be a people with a past. And a past that gets covered by grace. You were always meant to be a people that could say, that was me, but that doesn't own me anymore. That still plagues me, but it doesn't define me. That still haunts me in some ways, but it doesn't control me because I am a redeemed person and you can know the fullness of my junk if you've earned the right to know my story 
Because that doesn't control me. Because you don't have the final word. Your approval, your acceptance, your affection does not have the final say over who God says I am and what he says I am worth. I get to celebrate that the house of my soul is covered with the blood of God who has passed over me, who has come so close that he could see it all and has moved by. What might he pass over for you? What might he pass over for others? In closing then, by way of application, to bring some of this home, to bring this different future home for us, I want to encourage you to do two things, to bring your past and to lower the bar. First, bring your past, bring it under grace. What's part of your past that you would rather bury than remember? Probably doesn't take too much for any of us to think of that. It's probably right there. I'd rather bury that. There may be some truly awful, painful parts of your story. I'm not asking you to relive the trauma. Even Exodus 1 says only once a year were they to remember this. Only once a year were they to enter back into that. And even then, not remember the trauma so much as celebrate that that doesn't own them anymore, that God has put grace over that, that they are delivered from that, that death and pain no longer have final say over who they are. But are there parts of your story that God has redeemed, that you have been hiding and running from, instead of celebrating God's grace over Where does it feel like God's grace is small and your past is big? Where can you come back to the picture of Exodus where God's grace is massive and makes everything else look small? What is that for you? Is that shame? Is that a sexual past? Is it drug use? Is it betrayal? Is it prejudice? Is it it dishonesty and deceit? God has all those people in here. If that's you, it's been done in here. All those people have sat under grace. Where could you let God put his grace over your past more? Where could your name be written more in the appendices to this book as someone who has received grace? Someone whose past has looked like that. If you know Jesus in that way, that is true of you. And if you don't know him in that way, I want you to have that. Think about what would that look like? Where you don't have to fight with anybody over your past because Jesus has put all of that to rest. And he wants to draw close to you with all your junk, knowing all of it. If you do know him in that way, I want to encourage you. When we come to communion in just a few moments, I want you to remember when you eat the bread and you take the cup this morning, some way that God has redeemed you. And to give thanks and to celebrate in that. Because this is the successor to the Passover. This is the moment where we remember that God redeems us. But secondly and lastly, don't just bring your story under grace. I want to encourage you to lower the bar for others. Because if we get to participate in the grace of God as people with a past, as people with mess, as people who are impatient, who are rude, who are nasty, whatever it may be, then the bar for entering into this community is very, very low, right? If the bar is messed up people with a jacked up past, the bar for coming in here should be, if you are a messed up person with a jacked up past, come on in. The water's warm. 
You're with a bunch of other people who have the exact same issue. There is a wide open door in Christianity for broken people, even those with a terrible or tragic past. There's a wide open door to have a different future where all of that, whether it's what you did or what was done to you, is put under grace. So where do you need to lower the bar for who you will associate with as a Christian? Whose story, whose past is one you would never be caught dead with? When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, who is he hanging out with? Most of the time, it's people that those who were well-respected would never be caught dead with. Where are the ways in our church where we've ended up more like the respected religious elites, unwilling to get close to people, instead of like Jesus, who some of his closest interactions came with people who were so truly broken? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you lower the bar for the kind of past you think grace applies to. And he's going to do that by helping you see more of your own past, by helping you see more of your own junk. Because when we know that we are down here, it's so much easier to say, hey, you're here too. Nice to meet you. I've been here a while. (laughs) It'd be great to have some company, right? The more that we know our story, the more the Holy Spirit gives us grace to put our past under grace, the more we are willing to put other people's stories under grace. Where do we need to lower the bar for others? Let's ask the Holy Spirit for his help. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little space for you to pray on your own, to maybe thank God that he wants to draw close to you. He doesn't want to be distant. He wants to be close. Thank him for that. Maybe confess the ways that you'd rather hide than find grace. Maybe ask God to set you free from your past, to redeem it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you know where we've been and that you know where you want to bring us. Would you bring us there in our hearts? Would you resurrect us more and more each day? In your name we pray, amen.